Hi guys, this is Fatal Tales. My name's Katie. And I'm Azra. And today we are going to be talking about one of the most chilling murder cases to ever happen in Utah that I know of. Yeah, this is close to home for Katie. This is her hometown. Yeah, literally I have stood within feet of where this happened without even having any idea. You stood in the... Haven't you been, didn't you say you were in the five guys that this place got turned into? I've never been there, but I've been, so where this happened, there is a theater and like rock climbing place and like some restaurants and like the actual location is a five guys. I've never been inside the five guys, but I have walked all over that like block there. Like I've been everywhere there. That was the theater that I literally used to go to every other weekend if not more often fucking crazy oh and when we say it's a five guys it got turned into a five guys it was originally a high five uh like a hi-fi electronic store just so you guys know yeah it was an electronic store and then it got sold and turned into a five guys well it got leveled they built a mall there and then that got leveled and then sat empty for a while and then they put in the like complex that's there now so that makes sense i mean i don't think anybody would want to go fucking visit that store after what happened yeah it's yeah this case is really fucked up so yeah um, just a warning we're gonna be talking about like torture in this episode and uh it's pretty gruesome i don't really have much of a stomach for torture but this case was actually a request this is our very first requested case that we've ever done so that's exciting yeah this this case is pretty gruesome most of the details of it are toward the beginning so if you feel like maybe you don't want to hear some of the details feel free to just kind of like skip we'll let you know right before we get to like some of Mm -hmm. the really dark parts There also are mentions of sexual assault. Right. And uh, speaking of case requests, you guys can always send us case requests. We're happy to accept them and we will do our best to do them. You can send them to us on our email or on our Instagram or our Twitter. We always have those linked in our show notes. And yeah, but I guess we should just get into it. Yeah, I guess it's time to talk about the case. (laughs) So as we said, this is the hi-fi murders is what it's kind of typically referred to as and so on april 22nd in 1974 dale shelby pierre who was 21 years old and william andrews who's 20 years old went in and robbed the hi-fi electronics store and the results of this were three that were dead and two that were permanently injured the way that this went down was The two men went in, and they took the two employees of the store, Stanley Walker, who was 20 years old, and Michelle Ansley, who was 18 years old, down into the basement, and they were just kind of being held there so that the robbers could start taking things out of the store. Oren Walker, Stanley's father, who was 53, entered the store shortly after they were taken hostage to check on his son because he was expecting him to be done working and headed home, and when he wasn't home, his dad came to check on him. His dad was also taken hostage. There was also a 16-year-old boy named Courtney Nesbitt who entered the store and was also taken hostage. So Courtney was one of the friends of Stanley Walker, one of the employees there that night, and he 
had parked his car there so that he could go practice flying. He was training to become a pilot and he had his first solo flight that night. And then he went to go pick up his car and he stopped in to thank the, his friends who were like working at the store for letting him park there. When he walked in, he was also taken hostage. Shortly after Courtney didn't come home, his mother, Carol, who was 52 years old, knew that he had parked there, and she decided to go check on her son as well, and was also taken hostage. Right, so this whole thing kind of escalated far beyond what the Roberts initially thought it was going to be, which was just two teenagers who were working in the store that they would take hostage and then rob the store, and then it escalated into, like, this kid coming in, and then these two parents coming in to check on them, and then they had to take all of them hostage. So it really escalated further than the robbers thought that it would, but they were just fucking stupid for, like you said the other day, not locking the door. (laughs) Yeah, not locking the door, or like, I mean, we'll get to this later, they have a getaway driver, and technically I think he was supposed to be keeping a watch, like, how the fuck do you let someone walk in the front door? Right, it's just idiotic. These people are fucking idiotic. That's all. It's ridiculous. And, like, it just, I mean, I guess it probably started getting out of hand and just kept ramping up. It's just, I, this, this whole case is just mind-blowing to me because it's like, why are you robbing a store that has people in it to begin with? Like, right. it's 1974. Windows aren't that hard to fucking break in 1974. Right. I mean, as we'll find out, I don't think that... Like, I think that they definitely wanted to rob it. I think that they also wanted to kill people. I think at least one of them. That was at least a partial motive. Because what they did is really fucking vile. So It is vile. It's disgusting and it's horrifying and it's it's gross. Um, So now we're going to kind of talk about what the robbers did to the victims. So... It's going to get kind of gruesome. We're going to talk about the torture and the sexual assault. So if you want to skip past that, you probably should. Just a warning. So all of the hostages were bound, gagged, and held in the basement of the store. The hostages were then forced by the robbers to drink what they were told was a mix of vodka and sleeping pills. But they were fucking lying because what they were really drinking was Drano, which is an industrial drain cleaner, which is horrible. And so as they drank it, their throats began to burn. The victims screamed in pain as blisters began to form in their mouths and their throats, and the skin around their mouths began to peel off. (laughs) I hate this. I fucking yeah. hate it. Yeah. They were screaming really loudly, which is to be expected. But because of this, the robbers attempted to tape their mouths shut to keep them quiet. But there was so much pus oozing from their wounds that the tape wouldn't even stick. Which is just horrifying to think about that. Like, those kinds of injuries. Yeah. The victims also began to convulse as the Drano entered their systems. Now, 
One of the robbers, Dale Shelby Pierre, was irritated that the victims were not dying faster from the Drano. A doctor who talked about this case later said that the victims would have eventually died from the Drano, but it could have taken as long as 12 hours for that to happen. Jesus Christ. So it would have been like an extremely long, torturous death, but... Pierre wanted it to happen quicker and quieter, and he was irritated that that wasn't happening, and so he decided to shoot four out of five of them. He shot Carol and Courtney Naisbet and Oren and Stanley Walker in order to kill them quicker. After shooting these four, Pierre then turned his attention to 18-year-old Michelle Ansley. He took her to a different part of the basement, forced her to undress, and raped her repeatedly. He then took Michelle back to where the other victims' bodies were and shot her in the head. Apparently, her last words were, I'm too young to die. Michelle really makes me sad because she had just started working at the store, like, a week before this happened. Like, she was brand new, and she was supposed to have gotten married in, like, five months. God. And it's just tragic it is tragic it's so sad um and like it's a new job you don't know you don't really know what you're doing you're kind of excited you're kind of nervous and then this fucking happens it's horrible yeah i hate this so much like yeah this case really gets to me and like all of the cases get to me but like this one really really bothers me it really bothers me too and i bet it bothers you even more especially because like it's <laughs> so literally close to home yeah i mean it's very very close to where i live i'm not going to like triangulate myself too much aside from like saying that i've like literally been there very often but it's it's mm. very close yeah yikes um and i think i don't know like we're going to talk a lot in this case about varying like sides to it and like what happens to the murderers and like all kinds of things but I want to make it very clear I do not condone their actions this is vile this is evil oh absolutely this is horrifying they are they are monsters I think that's the bottom line yeah um I think anybody who could do this to another person is evil (laughs) yeah i mean i think yeah this is the kind of thing and i think i'll probably say this again later but this is the kind of thing that like people worry about this kind of thing happening but to me it's like it doesn't even seem real i if you told me like just two black men walked into an audio store to steal shit and killed five or you know attempted to kill five white people with drano I'd be like, no fucking way. Like, some of the details of that have to be at least mildly stretched. And really, they're not. No, they're not. It's It's ridiculous. After all five of the victims had been shot, Pierre noticed that Oren Walker, the 53-year-old father of Stanley Walker, was still breathing. So... One of the ways that Oren had survived this long was when he had seen the pain that the others were in after drinking the Drano, 
he had faked swallowing it and allowed it basically all to kind of pour out of his mouth. He was only mildly poisoned as a result, and when he saw the others convulsing, he pretended to convulse as well. So most of his like chemical burns were on the outside of his mouth and his shoulder, and somehow he had even managed to survive the gunshot wound to his head. So he was kind of pretending to be dead. Yeah, this is really smart of Oren. Honestly, props to him. A horrifying situation, but props to him. I cannot believe he survived. But when he realized that Oren was still alive, Pierre attempted to strangle him with a wire, but it would not work. And so he and his accomplice, William Andrews, then placed a pen inside Oren's ear, and Pierre then stomped on it. Which is, I cannot imagine having somebody stop, stomp on a fucking pen inside my ear. That's so horrifying. Yeah, like, <laughs> that's just like, I, I cannot even imagine the kind of pain that all of this would cause. Absolutely. And so the pen went so far in that it kind of like went into his fucking throat. And so obviously Pierre thought that he was dead from this. And so Pierre and Andrews continued to rob the store. They ended up stealing $24,000 worth of stuff, which equates to 126000 $800 in today's money, which is a lot of fucking money. That's like a fuck ton of stuff. And especially because like, I mean, audio equipment is very expensive, right? I'm not saying that it's cheap, but at this time, audio equipment was huge. So to get this into a vehicle or even potentially multiple vehicles, that's so much stuff to steal. And they ended up getting away by getting into a waiting van that another accomplice by the name of Keith Roberts, who was 19 at the time, was waiting in. And then they all just drove away in this van together. They were wrong about Oren Walker being dead, as he had managed to survive the poisoning, the shooting, the strangling, and the pen in his ear. The amazing thing about this is not only did he survive all of this, but... Oren Walker went on to testify in court. The pen that had been stabbed into his ear had gone five inches deep and caused permanent ear damage. And then eventually he passed away in 2000 at the age of 69. It's not believed that that's related to his injuries, however. That's incredible. Like, that he only came out of this with obviously some burns and permanent ear damage, but like, obviously psychological damage as well. But that he survived all of this incredible yeah genuinely incredible and and had the like wherewithal the ability to go and testify in court like that he remembered things that he was able to speak that he was able to to testify in such a like really detailed way right apparently his testimony was like one of the most moving out of everybody's in court so it's really amazing definitely but unfortunately, Oren's 20-year-old son, Stanley Walker, did not survive. Nor did Stanley's co-worker, 18-year-old Michelle Ansley. Mother and son, Carol and Courtney Nesbitt, both initially survived, 
However, Carol later died at the hospital from the severity of her injuries at the age of 52 years old. Courtney survived past this point after spending a whopping 266 days in the hospital, needing reconstructive surgeries from the damage that the drain cleaner had done to him. 266 days in the hospital. That's that's like a full year in the hospital. Really close to that, yeah. 265 days is a year, right? 365. Oh my god, I'm so fucking stupid. No, you're not. Oh, <laughs> uh, why did I think it was... T- oh, never mind. Let's just cut this whole fucking part out. I'm we, so stupid. We, we can cut the part. Um. However, he passed away years later in 2002 at the age of 44. And it is believed that it was partially due to the complications from his brain injuries from the attack because he did have severe brain damage. And after the attack, he kind of had spent his entire life in pain from the injuries he sustained. He tried to go back to school and then tried to work but was never really able to keep a job, so kind of lived life getting assistance from the government. But he kind of lived his whole life in pain, which is really sad. And, but the amazing thing is that Courtney did end up testifying in court as well, even with the severe brain damage that he had. Yeah. Which is incredible, I think. Yeah, he also had quite a bit of amnesia, so some of, like, he remembered some things but couldn't remember others. Yeah. Now, the mouth, esophagus, and stomach of all the victims, except for Oren, were severely burned as a result of the Drano, and as I mentioned, Oren's chin and shoulder had burns from the Drano, but he had let it kind of run out of his mouth. Now, after the robbers drove away, Oren attempted to crawl out of the basement, but he collapsed at the bottom of the steps. At 10.30 that night, police were called by Oren Walker's wife, who was worried because her son and husband had not returned home from her son's job yet. Now, his wife and son had gone to the store initially, like his other son had gone to the store initially, and heard noises coming from the back door that led to the basement. So his son had tried to break down the door while his wife called the police, and the police arrived and found the grisly crime scene at the shop. The day after the robbery and the murders, police received a tip from an airman who had been stationed at the same Air Force base as Pierre and Andrews. Apparently, Andrews had reportedly told this man months before that he had wanted to rob the hi-fi store and that he would kill anyone who got in his way. Now, I don't know about you, but, like, if I wanted to kill someone, I wouldn't go around telling fucking strangers that, like, I was gonna kill someone, you know? Yeah, it seems pretty fucking dumb to me. These guys are just not the smartest. And I feel like we say that every episode because every episode the killer gets caught and then we're just like, these guys aren't the fucking smartest. <laughs> I mean, I think anyone who kills someone probably isn't the smartest, but that's just my personal opinion. No, you're you're goddamn right. You're goddamn right. <laughs> now, two days after the crime, police received another tip that two kids had who had been playing nearby where Pierre and Andrew and Andrews lived, found personal items belonging to some of the victims in a dumpster. So the police then obtained a search warrant for Pierre and Andrews barracks, where they found a lease agreement of a storage unit a block away from the store that Pierre had signed. 
when they went to this storage unit, they found that it was full of stolen equipment from the hi-fi shop and a half-empty bottle of drain cleaner. So, uh... So... You done got caught. Yeah, these fucking morons. Like, why would they keep the lease agreement where they fucking... Ugh, idiots. Well, I feel like they probably weren't expecting the police to, like, catch on to them so quickly, but... Yeah. They talked about it. Kids found stuff that they shouldn't have had. It's... They're pretty... Pretty dumb. Pretty goddamn dumb. Now, while the police were searching for Pierre and Andrews, they started uh, racially profiling people, and they would pull over every car that had more than one black person in it, because Oren, in his, like, account of what happened that night, said that it was two black men that had attacked them. That's fucking racist. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, not Oren saying it was two black men. The police pulling over every car that had more than one black person in it because that's it's just like when people are like every black person looks the same every asian person looks the same no they fucking don't you just are racist if you think that i'm sorry you're a fucking racist yeah and i feel like it's just like it's racially profiling people it's saying if there's more than two of you together then we have to assume that you're potentially guilty of a crime And it's this exact thing that leads to black men being, you know, pulled over and getting, you know, searched and beat up and shot in the street for doing literally nothing. It's just, it's this idea that black men are inherently dangerous and that because of that, we have to chase them down and... Exactly. Bully them. And, And like, you would never see this happen if it was a crime committed by white men because it just would never happen because you would never see the police stop every car that was being driven by more than one white person because a they would actually draw a fucking picture of what they think the criminals look like because they would be able to they in their minds would be able to tell them apart because they're not racist well, because racism isn't be- a, isn't sorry, a factor. Because, because racism isn't a factor sorry that's what i meant to say But when it comes to a black person, all black people are criminals, right? Right. Exactly. Now, at this time, police believe that at least three other men were involved in the crime beyond just the three that they were able to actually arrest and prosecute. But they were never able to collect enough evidence to find any of them and, like, actually pin the crime on them as well. Now, Oren never said that he had seen anybody other than Andrews and Pierre. I think it's just the fact that they got so much equipment. Right. There's so, very yeah. little possibility that they could load all of that into just one vehicle so quickly. Exactly. Yeah. So police believe that there was a second van that somebody else was driving and two more lookouts. So three more people. Right. Which, if you're having two extra fucking lookouts, how did you let... Three more people enter the shop. Right. Literally anything would have been better than those people going into the basement. Like, you have to know that that's... It's just not... Like, that's not gonna be good for your plan. Like, if this is true, then you have, like, four people looking at the shop and watching the shop. How are they all letting these people in? Right. Now, prior to this like, these events, Ogden 
was a more open area than other areas in Utah as far as like race goes. Ogden's still a little bit better than other places in Utah as far as race goes, in my opinion, just because the Air Force Base is there, so there's more people that are not from Utah in that area, and Utah is very predominantly white, so there just aren't a lot of black people in Utah, but there is a slightly higher concentration of them in Ogden, but these murders kind of, at least temporarily changed that openness. People were very suspicious of black men in the area, especially during the time when they thought that there were more people involved in the murders than had been caught, or like while they were still looking for Pierre and Andrews. People remarked that after this attack, everyone started locking their doors, which they hadn't really done as much before. And like I said, obviously the police were pulling over every vehicle that had more than one black person in it. So it was just kind of a very tense time and a racist time. And it's not, like, it's never fair to equate, like, one crime or one thing to any specific, like, group of people. Right. And, I mean, this did happen to actually be two black men, but how often have we heard of cases where the people that are accused are black people, and then it turns out that it is, in fact, not black people that actually did it? Exactly. It's stereotyping and profiling and just really gross. Yep. Now, once these two men, Pierre Dale Shelby and Williams Andrews, were both arrested, they faced multiple counts of aggravated murder and attempted murder. The getaway driver, Keith Roberts, was later found and charged by police, but he was charged and convicted only with aggravated robbery, and he ended up serving only 13 years in prison. After their arrests and during interrogation, Police discovered that the men had gotten their inspiration for the torture and killing method from the movie Magnum Force, which is insane. So, in the movie, a man forces a woman to drink drain cleaner. And in the movie, this instantly clean kills her. Like, she drinks it and then she's just fucking dead. Like, there's no screaming, there's no pus nothing. She just drinks it, it's inside her, and it kills her. Of course, in reality, during the crime, it didn't instantly kill the victims. It was a long, very torturous, loud process, which is why Pierre got frustrated and resorted to shooting them instead. Yeah, obviously, life doesn't work like movies, and these guys were very quickly caught and arrested and interrogated and ended up pretty much confessing. There isn't a lot of detail about the, like, investigation, aside from what we've already stated, and there isn't also a lot of detail about the trial. We spent hours looking for information, particularly about the trial. I mean, we spent a good amount of time just, like, trying to find anything we could about it, and honestly, there's just not a whole lot. So, forgive us, we did our best, but I think where it was so long ago, it's just hard to find good articles and information. Now, what we do know is that the trial was held in Farmington instead of in Ogden, which is like a county over about 30 minutes away by the interstate. They felt that the news coverage in Ogden would have made it so that the trial was unfair. Farmington's really not that far from Ogden, so I don't know that it realistically would have made a ton of difference, but whatever. Basically, one thing that's unique and I think may have contributed to some of the unfairness of the trial, 
is the fact that, so in a 2019 census, about 2% of the population in Ogden was black. So this is like current today. There's about 2% of the population in Ogden that's black. In the same 2019 census, only about 0.8% of the population in Farmington is black. So like half of that number. And I'm sure in 1970, it was worse, not better. Which both of those numbers are still abysmal. Let's not get that wrong. Like, 2% in Ogden is still, like... A very small number. Fucking ridiculous. Like, have only 2% of your population be black? Fucking ridiculous and abysmal. Utah's a very, very, very white place. Like I said, there's, like, I think overall in the state about 13% of the population that's Hispanic and aside from that it's like virtually all white. So yeah like you were saying like back then who knows how many actual people there were in Farmington. Like it was probably you could probably count on your hand how many people there were in Farmington that were black people. Right and I mean I don't have statistics from back then. I theoretically the numbers could be very different than they are today but From what I know about Utah, Utah history, which is, I mean, I grew up here, so a little bit, a good amount, I don't think that there were more black people in 1974 than there are today. Basically, moving the trial to Farmington put it in an even more white area than it was already in. And so there was, obviously, they pull, like, a jury pool, and then they filter down, and, like, each, the prosecution and the defense each get to take turns removing people from the pool. I don't know exactly how many jurors there were called, but there was, out of that number, exactly one black juror that was in the pool, even that was considered for the trial. His name was Jim Gillespie, and he was a police officer in Utah's Liquor and Narcotics Division at the time. Prior to that, he had been a police officer in Ogden, and he knew a lot of the officers that were on the case of the Hi-Fi murders, He also knew the judge that was involved, the prosecutor, and he knew Dr. Byron Nesbitt, the father and husband of the two victims. So he was not really an ideal candidate for the jury for many reasons, but he was the only black guy that was even in the jury pool, so. Right. So, (laughs) but even, like, he was the only one who was in the pool, but they were never gonna fucking consider him. Right. Unfortunately. Yeah. But still, when he was asked if he thought he could fairly decide based only on the evidence presented in the trial, Gillespie said yes. He stuck around for a while, despite his experience as a police officer. So when the prosecutor decided to dismiss him anyway, Gillespie thought it was because he was black. The prosecutor claims that this was because Gillespie knew so many people so close to the case, he didn't want to risk a mistrial. Which, I think that Gillespie did know too many people too close to the case. Like, that is way too much fucking bias. Like, no matter how much you tell yourself that you can be unbiased, like, I think in a murder trial where you know the father of, like, two of the victims, you can't be unbiased, you know? Right. And, I mean, he knew the father, he knew the judge, he knew the prosecutor, he knew all the cops. Like, even if the only factor was that he knew the cops, I think that that's biasing in and of itself also because if you have intimate knowledge of the police officers 
police officers involved in collecting the evidence, you're going to have an inherent trust of them beyond just what an average person would have. Obviously, the evidence in this case is pretty much overwhelming, but it does bias him quite a bit. And I think that it wouldn't have been fair to have him on the jury, but it's also not fair to have zero black people on the jury. Right, exactly, because he was removed from the jury pool, the entire fucking jury was white. Right. Now, one thing that was really horrifying that happened during the trial was during sentencing, there was a napkin that was slipped to one of the jurors that read, hang the n-word. Obviously, I'm not gonna say the word, but you guys know exactly what fucking word we mean. Right. Which is horrifying extremely racist doesn't matter if they're guilty or not that's just racist yeah and i think that there's a like way for us to talk about this where obviously i think that the men were guilty i think that they deserved the punishment that was handed out to them you know they deserve to be punished for their crimes what they did was awful and it's pretty clear that they were actually guilty but i think aside from that we can also have a conversation about like the fact that they should have fair trials regardless of whether they're guilty or not and that race shouldn't be a factor and it clearly was in this case and i think that those two things are separate from each other and like obviously i think that they're guilty obviously i think that they should have you know had that the punishment for their crimes i just think that it's really unfortunate that everything about this case was so tinged with racial prejudice i completely completely agree In addition to some of the things we've already talked about regarding race, the jury was also a large majority Mormon, and that's significant because at the time of the trial, the LDS church did not allow black men to be priesthood holders in the church. Now, when I say priesthood holders, to most people, especially if you're not from Utah, that sounds like they just aren't allowed to be pastors or like to run the churches, but in the Mormon church, being a priesthood holder is actually kind of more of a general thing, at least for men. Most men are priesthood holders, and it's kind of an integral part to being a full member of the church to be a priesthood holder. Not being a priesthood holder would mean that they would not have been allowed to go on missions, which is very important to the LDS faith. Missionary work is kind of one of the integral facets of the LDS faith. They also would not have been able to practice temple rites or to go into the temple. And they would not have been able to attain some of the highest blessings and callings of the church. So they were able to get baptized and to, like, have the Holy Ghost or, you know, be have the Holy Ghost placed on them or whatever. But they weren't able to kind of have some of the other privileges and abilities that other members of the church would have. And the reason be- reasoning behind this, according to some of the, like, doctrine of the church at the time was that the church felt that dark skin was a sign of God's displeasure with people and that their sin against him in heaven was why he had chosen to make them dark skinned or black. So it's not even just a situation where these people weren't exposed or around black people on a day-to-day basis. They also have teachings in the church that would have further biased them against black people and made them perhaps view them in ways that were less than or that could have led to a very unfair trial. And I don't I don't mean to say that as like a, a diss on the Mormon church or whatever. I just mean to say that this is definitely potentially a factor in 
the way that these men were treated and the things that happened to them while they were, you know, obviously in sentencing, people giving them notes <laughs> that use literal race, racial slurs and the way that police were profiling black men in the area and all of this. It just, like I said, I think that there's a difference between having a fair trial and an unfair trial and then being guilty or not guilty. Like, I think that they were guilty and I think that they clearly in their interrogations admitted to that the evidence against them is pretty pretty solid evidence i just also think that race was definitely a factor in the way that they were tried and the way that this all went down so as for the trial going forward pierre and andrews were both tried together and both Oren walker and courtney nasbet were called to testify by the prosecution and each of them gave horrifying accounts of the torture they went through that evening. So after after all of this, Pierre and Andrews were both found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to death. Pierre changed his name 27 times while in jail in an attempt to take the heat off of his family. That's crazy, 27 times changing your name. And this is in a period of like what 13 years so yeah yeah a lot of name changes and i it makes sense like you don't want your family being hounded for something that you did right like their name is gonna forever be associated with your crimes and this fucking brutal torture of five people pierre also claimed to have found god in prison and spent his last days reading the bible fasting and praying he was executed by lethal injection on August 28th, 1987 at the age of 34, which I, I think really shows how young these guys were when they did this. Like, Pierre was only 21 when they robbed the store, which is really fucking young. I'm almost 21. <laughs> like, that's insane. Pierre was executed in 1987, but Andrews was not executed until five years later because of a holdup due to appeals. A key part in Andrews' defense was that he was not in the room when Pierre shot the victims and killed them. He was, however, in the room when they were forced to drink Drano, so... Eh. He also helped put the pen in Oren's ear. Right. So that Pierre could, like, fucking stomp on it. And they both thought that that had killed him. So. And not only that, but, like, the Drano was supposed to kill them. Like, according to the knowledge that Andrews and Pierre, Pierre had, they thought that it would be a very quick death. So right. it was pretty clearly intentional to kill them. Exactly. And Andrews had told that airman that he would kill anybody who got in his way, who got in the way of him robbing the store. So it's pretty clear that they both went into this intending to kill. Right. Now, one thing that's unique, at the time of the trial, the jurors were not given the option of sending them to prison for life without parole. It was the death penalty or life with the possibility of parole were kind of their two options. So... A lot of civil liberties groups have fought against Andrew's execution. Many murderers in Utah have gotten life sentences with or without the possibility of parole. And a lot of the civil liberties groups have kind of pointed to the fact that there was certainly racial bias in the case. 
and that since Andrews wasn't in the room when they were shot, he was wrongfully given the death penalty. I can see both sides on this one. I see where there are a lot of murderers who are given life sentences, and I also see where Andrews clearly did intend to kill them, and I can see that both of those things can be true at the same time. I think that there's two arguments here, and they're two separate arguments. Yeah. Here. I think that one su- one single argument is that Pierre and Andrews are both equally guilty because they both went in intending to kill them and attempting to kill them with the Drano. Right. And Andrews helping Pierre hold the pen in Oren's ear while he stabbed it intending to kill him with that also right i don't think that it matters that the drano failed i don't think that it matters that the pen failed he wanted to kill them all with that he helped pierre the whole time he robbed the store he wanted to kill them it was always his intention to kill them he had no remorse the entire time he was doing it you know right i think he and pierre are pretty close to equally as guilty as each other i think that's one argument to be made personally yeah i think the other separate argument to be made is that white people and black people are in fact treated differently in the judicial system and that's just a fucking fact no i completely agree i think that yeah i and i mean statistically that's true black Mm -hmm. people are regularly given different sentences longer sentences for the exact same crimes with the exact same records and rap sheets as white people i mean we just saw a man in the united states get executed for a crime he did not commit when the actual white man who did commit it came forward and admitted to doing it and they still fucking executed the black man who did not do the crime because that's how the americans like criminal system works right like that's how it fucking works right i mean they're very different systems of justice for black people and white people in the united states and i think that's a totally separate issue and right ultimately it also comes down to whether you believe that people deserve the best death penalty or not Mm -hmm. too i think Uh, yeah i I completely agree i think that's the third argument yeah. yeah like there's a a level to which if he were white he may not have gotten the death penalty there's also a level to which like what they did was fucking heinous and it's entirely possible that they still would have gotten the death penalty even if they were white and we'll never know because there's no way to i mean unless two white men go in and do the exact same crime there's no way to have a side-by-side comparison of this with anything else and i pray to god that that never happens but right and yeah like you said there's like that third argument of like the death penalty, which right. I will just say it right here, right now, so you guys know for future episodes, I am opposed to the death penalty. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not 100% sure where I fall because I can see where... I think that it is very often used in unjustly to murder black men, very specifically, but also people like it's so easy for the judicial system to have flaws and errors and to do the wrong thing we see people who are in prison for life or who get executed for crimes that they did not commit and it's later found through dna evidence or other crimes or other methods that they're a hundred percent not guilty 
of the things that they died for or that they've been in prison for. So I think that where we have such a room for error, I can understand why people don't want people to be killed for things. I totally get that. I also can understand where when people do heinous things, it feels like the only just thing is for them to no longer be alive. So, I think... I mean, I I get that, but, like, when you're putting someone in, for, like, in prison for life, you're taking away their life, you yeah. know? Yeah. You're taking away their freedom. You are basically torture... Like, it depends on what kind of prison they're going to, but you're basically torturing them for the rest of their fucking life. I... I don't know that it's our choice to decide whether or not we can take away somebody's life because just because somebody else has taken away people's lives like somebody else has decided to take away people's lives how does that make us better than them if we also decide to take away people's lives right right i agree and i i I think that it's a really tricky scenario because i think that yeah like i said there's a lot of room for error Mm -hmm. too i i'm completely understanding of that and i'm not saying that Mm -hmm. like in a lot of cases it's ever justified or like justifiable but i think that in a situation where you know for a hundred percent fact there's dna evidence they have admitted to it you have you're fully aware that they did it and they're fully aware that they did it and i don't i i don't know i think that that would be the only scenario where i could see it justified if it was something extremely heinous but i don't know i mean I just I think our justice system is way too flawed for that to be the case though. Like I, I don't yeah. think we're ever going to get to that point where yeah. you can be fully sh- fully aware because there's too much pre- there's too much racial prejudice in our sy- in our judicial system. There's too much homophobia in our judicial system. There's just way too much fucking prejudice all around in our judicial system. People hate minorities. That's just what it fucking is, you know. Yeah. I mean, even if you take away yeah. cops and prosecutors and judges, like you have a jury of people, how easy is it to sway them if they're prejudiced? You know. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. I don't know. I think it's tricky, yeah. and I like I said, I just want to say that I I still hold space for. Sometimes it feels like that's the only just thing, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I think I think that it's so hard to make a a final judgment either way and i don't condone anybody either way yeah i guess we should get back to uh the actual case andrews (laughs) yeah yeah i mentioned before they were not given the option of life without parole so his lawyers had asked for a new trial that would be held for andrews where he would be given the option of life without parole but the utah state supreme court ruled that it would not be fair to apply the law retroactively in a way that would allow them to give him life without parole so instead they decided to move forward with the execution and so william andrews was executed on july 30th 1992 he was executed shortly after the police who beat rodney king were acquitted and the police in Utah were very concerned that there would be riots for Andrews's execution. 
and so to prepare police and riot gear were at the prison in case anything happened. Reverend France Davis of Calvary Baptist Church in Salt Lake maintains that Andrews's sentence should have been commuted to life since the death penalty is used at disproportionate rates to kill black people. Which he is right that it is used at disproportionate yeah. rates to kill black people. Yeah. That's a fucking fact. No, I and completely agree. if you disagree, you need to do some fact-checking and do some research. Yeah, I mean, it, honestly, if you disagree with any of the things that we've said about race in this episode, I would strongly encourage you to look into the, like, disproportionate rates at which black people are imprisoned for crimes, the way that they're, like sentences are longer the way that their sentences are more harsh for the exact same crimes as their white counterparts with the same rap sheets and records and also just the fact that police are in black neighborhoods more often patrolling for those things also due to race racial prejudice and racial injustice so right yeah i i just Um, encourage all of you to look into that yeah because it is really glaring like the numbers are very like it's not even just like slightly disproportionate it's insane like the like the differences are actually insane and once you take a look at them like you can't stop thinking about them and if you're somebody who is kind of like on the edge about like the black lives matter movement you would understand why (laughs) like all of it is happening if you look at those numbers because it is ridiculous even within utah 80% of Utah is white, 64% of our prison population is white, 13% of our population is Latino, 24% of our prison population is Latino, so almost double, not quite double, the prison population, or the population is the prison population, and then our population is 1% black overall, and is- 1%? Yeah. Oh my god. And it, our prison population is 6% black. Jesus fuck. So, Are you kidding me? No. So it's six times the number of black Actual people. black people who live in the state. Right. Six times the percentage. So if you think that this isn't a problem in Utah, if you think that because there aren't a ton of black people here, there isn't racism here, you're wrong. I mean, six times. The fact that there isn't black people means that there is fucking racism. (laughs) I mean, I think that when I was younger, I had this naive idea that because I I had one black friend, I think, growing up in high school. Um, I think I've had like four black friends in my whole life. I think that's probably, if not exact numbers, that's like a rough estimate. And I think that because I didn't see them being bullied because they were black, that that didn't happen in Utah, or that because I didn't see any of the direct effects of racism, it didn't happen because I just wasn't exposed to it. Obviously, that's fucking naive and not true, but I think that it's easy when you're not exposed to black people on a regular basis to hold stereotypes about them that you're not even aware that you hold and to think that even though you hold those stereotypes that it's not really a problem because 
you don't see it directly impacting your life in a very real way. Where, like, somewhere in the South, you see racial tension on a day-to-day basis, and you experience it in a real time in real life. So I think it it's just different. Right. I think that's a great way to put it. Yeah. But if you if you're under the impression that I was under when I was younger, that racism doesn't happen here, it's it does happen here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it definitely does. One thing that I think is really important to highlight from this case. So Byron Naisbit, who is the husband to Carol and the father to Courtney, Carol obviously died in the attack and Courtney was permanently injured and had complications from that that resulted in his death in 2002. When he was asked about the murders in 1989 and what he thought should happen to Andrews, this was three years before Andrews was executed, he said he really didn't care what happened to Andrews. He thinks that it's up to the state to deal with criminals and that, you know, whatever state decides is what they decide. But one thing that I think is really powerful that he did say is he thinks that more should be done to care for the victims of violent crimes. He mentioned that his son has a lot of, or had, a lot of difficulties caring for himself and always will, or always would have, those difficulties in caring for himself and taking care of himself. And he mentioned that if his son had been injured in some kind of an accident, there would be insurance claims, there would be plenty of money for him, you know, he could sue, he could do whatever to make sure that he had enough money to care for his son and his injuries and to, you know, provide those things for him. And basically his son would have been set for life, he wouldn't have had to worry. But because he was attacked in a violent way by a criminal, the criminal got prosecuted, justice was done or wasn't done, depending on your opinion in that way. But he didn't get any money to care for him. Basically, he was just left to fend for himself and to, you know, figure out his own life. And it's like, you know, he had permanent injuries from that attack that needed care, that needed funds, and there was just nothing. And so Byron is a very strong advocate for the fact that victims should have some kind of a fund that the state should set up some kind of a fund to care for victims and to care for their families you know this is something that i've never really thought about until this case i'm honestly ashamed to say yeah um because obviously we talk about the physical and psychological impact that all of this has on victims and in past cases like what all of this would have on victims but i've never thought about the financial side of it like what's the financial what are the financial ramifications of of being attacked because obviously like i never thought about it but obviously like insurance doesn't cover attempted murder right <laughs> like no like under your insurance policy there's no there's no insurance policy covering like robbery attempt and fucking being forced to drink drano you right. know right So what do you do in that situation? Like, obviously, like, we know he was on welfare, but, like, that only covers so much. Like, we know that those programs in the U.S. aren't really great. And, yeah, it just, it really leaves you to think a lot about it. I think another thing that I'd like to mention is the fact that, obviously, in the United States, we don't have universal health care or anything. So you're looking at hospital bills. You're looking at... You know, obviously he was in the hospital for 266 days. I can't even imagine how much that would cost. You know, multiple surgeries, 
all of the, you know, things that he had to go through. His dad was a doctor. His dad, I think, did, was an OBGYN, if I'm not mistaken. So he made a good amount of money, but still the financial burden that that would place on a family is outrageous. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, he probably had good health insurance, but still, I don't think any health insurance would cover that kind of hospital stay. No. And then the amount of prescriptions he probably had to take for the rest of his life for pain, for whatever. Ridiculous, you know? Yeah. He, we don't ever think about that, but yeah. Yeah, there's just no way that this would be like a simple open and shut, you know, he's got a clean bill of health now. He was severely injured, and that would have had a lot of cost associated with it alone. Not right. to mention the probably, fact that he couldn't work. And he probably had to go to therapy for a long time if not for the rest of his life for the psychological trauma that this probably caused right i mean and Oren probably both did right i hope they did i hope it wasn't a situation they were like just suck it up yeah Um, god i fucking hope not go to therapy guys (laughs) but yeah i guess this is our i guess that's our case it was really dark and really tragic and i hope you guys were able to sit through it and i hope that it kind of leaves you guys thinking we covered some really heavy topics and hopefully if you guys don't know much about any of the topics we talked about you guys can go and do some research and educate yourselves we're always huge proponents of that but yeah i guess that's all make sure you share this episode with anybody else who you think might want to listen leave us a review on apple podcasts those help us out a lot follow us on instagram at fatal tales put false on twitter at fatal tales pod send us any case suggestions at fataltales at gmail.com and i guess that's all remember guys be gay and don't do crimes or at least don't get caught okay. have a good one bye guys